Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. When a doctor is referred to as a quack, it usually means that person is a fraud or doesn't know what they're talking about. The term derives from the word quacksalver, which itself is an archaic Dutch word meaning hawker of salve. Today we might call them a snake oil salesman, but back then men would stand on street corners and shout about the curative properties of whatever ointment or tincture they were trying to sell, almost all of it false. Not all of their sales tactics were stationary, though. A dentist in 1770s London had the bright idea to take his show on the road. His name was Martin Van Butchel, and he rode upon a white pony with purple spots. He painted those on himself, though. Butchel advertised his practice in local papers, often boasting about his talents at dental reconstruction. Real or artificial teeth, his ad read, from one to an entire set. He promised top-of-the-line hardware fitted to the individual with no pain. Suffice it to say, he didn't quite live up to those promises, but that didn't stop people from flocking to his door. It was London in the 1770s, and dentists were a hot commodity, especially among the elite. And even though sugar was a luxury for the middle and upper classes, its use increased fourfold in Britain during the 18th century. That meant that making a good living, even for quacks like Butchel, wasn't like pulling teeth, even though that was exactly what they did, I know. But as business grew, so did the competition, and soon Butchel had to come up with interesting ways to drum up new customers. Some dentists might have created advertisements, or hired someone to walk up and down the block with the sandwich board sign hung on their shoulders. But not Butchel. He took his advertising game to a whole new level. He had his wife, Mary, sit in the front window of his practice as a way of enticing ailing passers-by. She simply sat there in full view for all Londoners to see. She didn't mind. She didn't complain about it. That's because she was dead. Butchell had tasked his former surgery and anatomy professors with embalming his late wife. Then they replaced her eyes with glass ones, colored her cheeks and lips, and dressed her in a fancy gown before placing her in a glass-topped coffin. The display worked. Londoners came in by record numbers to see the deceased woman in the window, though not all of them were happy about it. Many scolded him for such a grotesque display, or for not giving her a proper burial. She deserved better, they said. But none of that bothered Butchell, although it did bother his new bride, Elizabeth. After he remarried, she told him to get his dead wife's body out of the window. There was no way that she was going to share her man with another woman, even a dead one. Not wanting to risk losing two wives, he gave Mary's corpse to the brother of one of his former teachers. She was passed down over the years until she was eventually donated to the Royal College of Surgeons Museum, where she was once again put on display. Now, if only Butchell's professors had taken a bit more care with his late wife's embalming, They hadn't done a very thorough job, and Mary's body began to slowly deteriorate. What was left of her was destroyed in 1941 during a German bombing raid. 
However, Mary Van Butchel's story left all those who heard it, especially her husband's patients, with one simple question. Why? Why did Martin Van Butchel have his wife embalmed and stuck in his window? Well, it wasn't just about luring new patients into his practice. No, he had another reason. According to Butchel himself, there had been a clause in his marriage contract that stated he would continue to receive income from Mary's family as long as she remained above ground. And that's precisely where he kept her. Everyone knows that athletes are no stranger to superstition. Wade Boggs famously ate a whole chicken before every Yankees game. Michael Jordan wore his UNC shorts under his Bulls uniform for all of his NBA games. There have been stories of unwashed socks, of lucky gloves, and all sorts of rituals that anyone outside the locker room might find strange. These sports stars believe their traditions were what helped them play their best and win. However, Superstitions were not limited only to professional sports. The world of professional music is home to many bizarre customs and superstitions. For example, since the 1960s, several famous rockers have joined what's known as the 27 Club, named for those who died at the age of 27. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison are all members, as is Kurt Cobain. Even weirder is the White Lighter Curse, Legend has it that any musician who uses a white lighter is doomed to an unpleasant fate. And wouldn't you know it, four people who were carrying white lighters when they died were Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and Kurt Cobain. Superstition has struck singers in the Philippines as well. Karaoke bars all over that country have pulled Frank Sinatra's My Way from their song collections, due to the high number of deaths of people who have sung the song. But perhaps the worst case of superstition affecting a musician can be found in the case of Austrian composer, Arnold Schoenberg. Born on September 13, 1874, Schoenberg changed the face of music through two world wars. He also developed a severe case of triskaidekaphobia, the fear of the number 13. Schoenberg was known to avoid rooms, floors, and entire buildings numbered 13. In his compositions, he would number the measures between 12 and 14 as 12A. He even titled his last opera Moses and Aaron, the latter name spelled with 1A, much to my chagrin, instead of 2, because otherwise the title would have had 13 letters in it instead of 12. And if his age or birthday year happened to be a multiple of 13, It set him on edge like nothing else. Here's an example. As his 56th birthday approached in 1939, Schoenberg consulted an astrologer regarding his horoscope for that year. And even though 1939 was not a multiple of 13, 65 certainly was. The astrologer told him it would be a dangerous year, but he would survive. That assurance calmed him. However, in all his worry about multiples of 13, there were other parts of his life that he hadn't considered. One such area was in the digits of his age. For example, on his 76th birthday in 1950, another astrologer warned him to be careful. Not only was 1950 a multiple of 13, 
But when the numbers 7 and 6 from his age were added together, they totaled, you guessed it, 13. It seemed as though Schoenberg couldn't escape the cursed number no matter where he went. On the day of his 76th birthday, a nervous and depressed Schoenberg decided to spend it in his bed. There was no party. No one paid him a visit or called to wish him well. At 11.45 that night, he and his wife lay in bed, and she looked at the clock and said to herself, Another quarter of an hour, and then the worst is over. Soon after the words left her mouth, the phone rang. It was the doctor. Her husband made a sound in his throat, and then his heart stopped. Arnold Schoenberg's worst fear had come true. He died at 13 minutes to midnight on his 76th birthday. In 1950, on Friday, the 13th. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.